Well, there are some sections of the Bible that I don't want my kids to read yet. They're just too young. And this is one of those sections. It's a Sunday school staple, the story of Joseph. But what we're going to look at today is, I mentioned earlier, this is some stuff that I hope, if you had a Sunday school teacher, that they didn't get into when you were young. If you have your Bible, please open with me to Genesis chapter 35. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We keep a stack of them at that table in the back and that table in the back, and they're there for you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free. All right, this is from what's uh, the first book of the Bible. We call it Genesis, and I'm going to read from uh, Genesis chapter 35, starting with verse 22. Jacob had 12 sons. They were the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then there were the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there were the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Nephalti. The sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob. All right, let's try to unpack this a little bit. Every family I know has a history that is at least somewhat complicated. And that was the case with this family. Jacob, the guy we're talking here, Jacob, had the 12 sons. His grandpa Abraham and grandma Sarah, they left a legacy of great faith. They also left a legacy of lies and betrayal and an attempt to produce an heir for the patriarch through the matriarch's servant. Jacob's father, Isaac, and his mother, Rebekah, they also left a legacy of great faith. And with that legacy, also brought on more lies and acts of deception that were so great that Jacob's brother Esau wanted to kill Jacob because of the deception that was endorsed by his mom. Now, the backstory might shed a little light on the family tree. I'm a very visual person, so I had to map this out. So what you're going to see on the screen here is there's one of the moms and her kids with Jacob underneath her, and we have the birth order. That's what the numbers are. And then there's Zilpah. She was Leah's servant, and there's her sons with Jacob. There's Rachel, the favorite wife. That's not my words. That's the scripture's words. Uh, She has two sons, and there they are. And then Bilhah is Rachel's servant, and there are the sons that Jacob had with her. Now, Leah and Rachel, they're not just Jacob's wives. They're also sisters. They're also sisters. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel because she was the hot one. That's what the Bible says, just it uses Hebrew. You just have to translate it into hot. (laughs) And he wants to marry the hot one, but he gets deceived by his future father-in-law. He gets deceived on the wedding night, and he consummates the marriage with Leah instead of Rachel. The Bible, I think, and I think this is almost a direct translation, the Bible says, Jacob woke up, and there was Leah, you know? Oops, oops. Well, deception and favoritism are woven into the fabric of this family from day one. The kids are caught in the crossfire, as is the case so often. The kids get caught in the crossfire of a family system where there were moments of hope, moments of faith, but there was also idolatry. There was deception. There was profound insecurity, unfiltered jealousy, blatant favoritism, and ridiculously bad decision-making on the part of the grown-ups. Now, the narrator does all kinds of things with this narrative, and one of them is to contrast three brothers. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to contrast three brothers as the narrator contrasts them, Reuben, 
Judah, and Joseph. Let's start with Reuben. Now, if you opened your Bibles, one of the reasons I had you to do that, had you do that was open your Bibles to, I said, Genesis 33, or 35, 22. We didn't start reading with Genesis 35, 22, at least not all of it. We read the second part of 35, 22. We read the B part. Here's the A part. Here's how this section opens up. It opens up with this. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And Israel heard of it. Now, if you're wondering who is Israel, Israel is Jacob. Israel is the name that God gave Jacob. Now, this gets even more shocking when you look at the context. So that's, again, why I have you open your Bibles here. Take a look at this. Look what comes right before this. Immediately before this incident where Reuben goes in and sleeps with his father, concubine Bilhah, immediately before this, Rachel's wife, who Bilhah was her servant, Rachel's favorite wife, dies. And it's dramatic. You have Rachel's in labor, and the Bible says it was a hard labor. And literally, with her dying breath, the words that the the scriptures use, her soul is departing from her. As her soul is departing, as Rachel's dying, she cries out with her dying breath, you know, basically, name him Ben, to the son. And then she dies. That comes right before this. Right before this. So if we frame this the way the narrator does, right before Reuben slept with Rachel's servant, what happened to Rachel? She dies like that. And this comes next. Reuben having sex with Rachel's servant, his father's concubine, the mother of two of his half-brothers comes next. So you've got all this drama, and then what does the narrator do? He gives you a list of names. That seems weird. Why get all genealogical if that's even a word? Why, Why do that right here? Well, we have a clue. The sons of Leah, Reuben the what? Firstborn. The firstborn. Now, we can only speculate here, but if you speculate using history at that time, at that place, firstborn is a big, big, big deal. Big deal. And there's many scholars that speculate that what Reuben did could have been a power move. I want, I want dad's power now. I want to be looked at as the patriarch of this family now. It could have been that. We don't know for sure. It could have been that he was attempting to underscore, I have authority over my brothers. Let me prove it. It could have been that. We don't know for sure. It could have been an act of physical desire. Nothing more. It could have been that. We don't know for sure. The narrator doesn't reveal Reuben's motives. And what you want to do when you read narrative, we talked about this last week, when you read, look at narrative, you don't want to just read into the story. You want to read it. What does the narrator himself reveal about this? Well, here's what he reveals. He reveals that firstborn Reuben never recovered from this. And if you don't believe me, take a look for yourself. Go on a tool like BibleGateway.com. Type in the word Reuben and follow every instance where Reuben comes up, every instant that the narrator records because he left stuff out. But what did he record? Every instance. There's some repair attempts on Reuben's part to fix things. Reuben never recovers. Why do I say he never recovers, at least as far as the narrator goes? Because go to the end of the narrative. Genesis 49. Let's take a look. What's happening here in Genesis 49 is this is almost the very end of this narrative. Now Jacob is old. He knows his time is short. He's about to die, and so he's going to bless his sons, and that was a big deal. Blessings back then, big deal. So he's going to bless his sons, and what kind of blessing does the firstborn get? He gets the best blessing. He gets by far the best blessing. So it's time for firstborn to be blessed as well as the rest of the sons. Firstborn should get the best blessings. Let's look at the blessing he gets. Genesis 49, 1 
Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you. These blessings, big deal. I'll tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and you defiled it. You can wreck my car. You can overdraw your savings account. This is in a different category. Reuben was the firstborn son. Firstborn son, Reuben should have received the best of the blessings that Jacob had to get, give. Instead, he gets this, which is more like a curse than a blessing. Please take a moment to write this down because this could save you a lifetime of pain. What we're going to do right now, we're going to illustrate three tr- um, truths from this text. When again, when it comes to narrative, you have to be careful not reading into it. So here's what it illustrates. Here's what it illustrates. The consequence of sexual sin can wound a person for a lifetime. More so than other mistakes that we can make. You make a misstep in this area, it can wound you for a lifetime. And it's so tragic. Someone um, handed me a photocopy from a blog, and uh, this blog is talking about young people and why young people are reporting that they're leaving Christianity. And number two on their list was they said it's, Christianity is too sexually restrictive. What a tragedy. If you're going to leave the faith, what, what a tragedy that that would be something you put down. There's going to come a day if you go off on your own path and you say, I'm just going to forget what God says about this because what is that? He's just saying no to everything fun. There will come a day where you're going to see things otherwise. You're going to see that really what this is, it's more akin to loving father saying, don't play in the highway. Don't play in the highway. And if you choose to walk by faith and not by sight, and it'll take that because if you're a young person, you're just starting out and you're saying no to these temptations that it seems like everyone else is saying yes to, it's going to be hard. If you say yes to God, there will come a day where those same people who right now are saying, you're a fool, are going to say, I wish I have what you have right now. I wish my relationships were like you. I wish I didn't have the baggage that I've got. Over the years, I've walked with a lot of people through a lot of painful things. And there's a lot of things out in this world that can scar you. I've never seen anything scar people like sexuality. If you're experiencing something other than what God intended. If you force yourself on someone else sexually, you can wound them for the rest of their life. A victim of a sexual assault can be wounded for life. Nothing can change a friendship. Let's just get a little more superficial. If you're friends and you have sex, it changes your friendship. And it can break up your whole friendship group. It can break the whole thing up. Why that? Why, why is that different than so many other things? If you betray your spouse sexually, Jesus himself said, That is grounds for divorce. It's the only exception that I know that he gives. That's how serious it is. That's how it's different than some other things. There are those, oh, there are those whose lives were forever changed when they made the decision to take a picture of themselves without any clothes on and hit send. That one thing, that one stupid mistake changed their life 
forever in a way that's very different than other similar mistakes that didn't involve sexuality. I can't count, and I am honest, I cannot count the number of people who I've had a conversation with, and they said, if I could go back and I could change anything, if I could change anything I've ever done, and I could only do one, I would have saved sex for marriage. I can't count the number of people who've told me that. And I can't count the number of people whose relationships that started off with so much promise were destroyed by pornography. Reuben's sexual misstep followed him for a lifetime. And he's not unique in that. It's happening all the time. But here's the good news. This is not a message of don't. There's good news here. Reuben's not the only example that we have in the scriptures from that family. Let's look at the, a second example, Judah. Let's look at Judah. There's hope here. There is hope here. There is hope here. All right, Judah, let's turn to chapter 38. Oh, boy. Chapter 38. What do you do with chapter 38? Some of you are reading that ahead. And they're like, good luck with this one. Good luck with chapter 38. Chapter 38 opens with Judah, and a quote says that he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite. And you're thinking, I was thinking, and? But this, this is where those tools I talked about last week are so helpful. You do a, just a little bit of studying. What's an Adulamite? An Adulamite is a person from Adula. What's in a person from Adula? Canaanite. What's happening right here? This is a, the narrator saying, cue the Jaws music. Something bad is going to happen. Dun, 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 dun. This is cue. This is verbal cue at that time in that place. Because Canaanites, the author's utilizing foreshadowing, friendships, marriages, treaties with the Canaanites never went well. They were problematic to say the least for God's people. Well, Judah doesn't just turn down and go to, the, to a certain Adulamite. He marries a Canaanite woman unnamed, which is significant. He marries an unnamed Canaanite woman who bears him three sons. And Judah arranges a marriage for his firstborn son with a woman named Tamar. Two sons later, Tamar is still a childless, desperate widow. She's so desperate that she covers herself with a veil and allows Judah to think that she's a prostitute and to utilize her services as such. Do you see why we sent the kids out? Tamar gets pregnant with twins. Judah doesn't know he's the dad. And talk about a double standard. What does Judah say? Oh, you're pregnant and you hooked up with somebody that you're not married to? Let's execute her. Double standard because Judah just got done with a prostitute. But here's the twist, and here's where you start to see some hope for Judah. In fact, why is Genesis 38 in the Bible? to show that there's a turning point in this man's life. That's the point of it. There's a turning point. And again, you don't believe me, look at the text. Go to Genesis 38 and look on. Hit Judah. Do the word search. See how Judah's life changes from this moment when he says this. She's more righteous than I. Truth comes out. What does Judah do? He doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try to run from it. Judah says, she is more righteous than I. And not only does he make this heartfelt confession, what else? He didn't sleep with her again. He changes his behavior. And you see that now 
as the story goes on. You follow Reuben's life, there's no direct equivalent to this. There's some repair attempts, and if you can look at them, even as they're stated, it's more about, I think, him trying to gain some favor, you know, with himself. There, there's no equivalent here. In Judah's case, there's a heartfelt verbal confession that what he did was wrong, and there's a change in behavior. The Bible calls that repentance. And why do I say this is hope-filled? Why do I say this is good news? Because there is power in repentance. God honors repentance. God brings reconciliation when there's repentance. Near the end of chapter 38, sexual sin had resulted in Judah sinking about as low as a person can go. But Judah learned from his mistakes, and God did something amazing. In fact, the very light of the world can be connected to this dark chapter in history. Let me show you what I mean. We've been in Genesis, first book of the Bible. Let's go all the way to the end, Revelation. Revelation 5.5 says this. Look at this. As they're talking about the end of the age. Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me hit pause there. When Jacob hands out the blessings, when Jacob blesses these sons, he calls Judah a what? Does anyone know? He calls him a lion. So connected to that blessing, now we have a lion. This person is going to come up from the tribe of Judah and is going to do this. He's going to triumph. And he's also going to come from this guy named David. So out of the, the tribe of Judah, out of a descendant of David, there's going to be someone who's going to triumph over all sin for all time. Who is that person? It is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew is sometimes called the New Testament Genesis, sometimes called the New Testament Genesis. And it starts with one of these name lists that you're like, why are these name lists there? Here's why the name list is there. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And look who's on that list, Judah. Our Messiah came from that. And not just that union, you've got David, King David. He came from that union, and out of this relationship, where his mother had been Uriah's wife, out of an affair in which King David used his power to have that guy killed, we have Jesus the Messiah comes from that line. And one of the things that pops off the pages to me here is the church, the early church, did not sweep scandal under the rug. It is on display for the world to see that God can make something beautiful out of it. God can take something that we do horrifically wrong. God can make something beautiful out of it, out of our mistakes, out of our wounds. In fact, I'd encourage you to write this down. God is good enough and God is great enough to heal our brokenness. He's good enough and he's great enough to heal our brokenness. I know a lot of you don't look like the amen types, but come on, that's an amenable one, isn't it? That is amenable. God is good enough. He is great enough to heal our brokenness. One of the, I, I once heard someone speaking, and she had scars of her own. I, I once heard a woman talking who had been scarred because of mistakes that she had made, and she said this, God can take your scars, and he can turn them into beauty marks. How beautiful is that? God can take our scars. He can turn them into beauty marks. God can turn wounds into a testimony of his amazing grace and his ability to take something that looked like it could go nowhere and bring something beautiful out of it. God can do that. So hear the good news. Your failures don't have to be fatalistic. It doesn't have to end like Reuben. 
it can end like Judah. What a powerful lesson. Well, I said we were going to look at three brothers. Let's turn our attention now to Joseph. And the example that Joseph sets when it comes to sexual sin is the most important of all. Can God work for you if you fail morally? Yes, absolutely God can work through you if you fail. But wouldn't you rather get it right the first time if you can? As much as it depends on you, isn't it better to avoid the pain if you can, even if it means from this day forward, isn't it better? Come on, do I have to put up a sign that says amen now, please? Okay, thank you. And I know you don't feel like you have to do that, but just that, you know, feel free to speak that out because that is, a, that is an amen, that God's inviting us to not have to get hurt First. He's saying, you know what, as much as it depends on you, no matter what's happened in the past, from this day forward, you can save yourself a whole lot of hurt. A whole lot of hurt. So let's look at Joseph. Here's an example of someone who didn't have to learn the hard way. And this part of the account picks up in Genesis 39. We just got done with 38. Dark, dark, dark. Let's take a look at 39. This comes right after the account of Judah. Probably a reason for that. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. He had been sold into slavery right before this, all right? So he's taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that Joseph prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. All right, let's jump ahead to verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Pause. Last week when we were talking, I said with narrative, you, 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 or I just said in general, you want to pay attention to the context. The context, the genre of this thing that we're reading right now is Hebrew narrative. Hebrew narrative doesn't include details like this. They don't just say, there was a man named Joseph and he had blue eyes and blonde hair because he didn't have blue eyes and he didn't have blonde hair and there was no Swedish Jesus, but that's another thing for another time. All right, they, they don't describe usually physical attributes. They don't describe physical attributes unless it's really, really important. So here we go, cue Jaws music, dun, 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 dun. When you see they're giving a physical description, that is code for this means something. Pay attention. Joseph has his mother's looks, and we're not just telling you that to tell you that. That plays into the story, and here's how it plays into the story. He's hot. That's a translation from Hebrew. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. The, the wife here is saying, hey, the guys do this all the time with their slaves, equal rights. I got this hot pool boy, you know. All right, I'm reading into a little bit. I better get back to the text. Okay, so now before we get to Joseph and how he responded here, remember his family of origin. Remember all the dysfunction in the past. And here's something I haven't said yet. Both Joseph's grandfather and his great-grandfather were willing to lie to save themselves, even if lying meant that someone else might end up lying with their wife. So he comes from a history where, you know what, make the compromise, deal with the moment, and we'll deal with the consequences later. Joseph doesn't do that. He breaks the family of origin mess. Not, and, and one more thing I want to point out here too. Joseph is about to reference God. This is the same God that allowed him to get thrown into slavery. But rather than doing that 
thing that we do where I owe it to God because God wasn't there for me. Look how Joseph handles this. Here we go. Back to the text, starting with verse 8. Joseph refused this come on. With me in charge, he says, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. You're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Don't lose that last phrase. As much as it depends on you, distance yourself from this situation. If you know what's going to happen when you go to a certain place or when you're alone or whatever, as much as it depends on you, avoid that. All right, let's continue with the account. Verse 11, one day Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. Oh, no. She caught him by his cloak. Pause. Something else happened with his cloak a while back, didn't it? was used for deceptive purposes. That's not uh, included there by mistake. So she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. He left his cloak in her hand and he what? Ran. He ran outside. All right. Sorry about all these side... No, I'm not sorry about all these side notes. Here's another side note, important side note. I was trying last week as best I could to say, get some tools, you know, get some tools so you can know more about this text. Here's an example of why that could be helpful. You may or may not someday be sitting in a classroom with a professor who's got an axe to grind against Christianity. Professor may say, aha, this author borrowed from the Egyptians in this story. There is an Egyptian tale of two brothers strikingly similar to this. It's clear that whoever wrote this took that account from the Egyptians. Why is it good to have Bible study tools? One, even a decent study Bible will, will alert you to that controversy. Number two, a timeline, a good timeline will cue you into the fact that, yep, there was an account, and that account surfaced six or 700 years after this account. So what does that say to Professor Man? Isn't it interesting that there's an account strikingly similar to real events that happened in Egypt prior to that account. Just a thought. All right, let's go here. Now, back to the text. Here's what I want to point out from this. What I want to point out this. Another truth that's illustrated from the text, it is wise to do what Joseph did. It is wise and God-honoring to distance yourself from the source of sexual temptation or exploitation whenever possible. It's not always possible. When it's possible, as much as it depends on you, distance yourself. This is too hot a stove to see how close can I put my finger on it. Look at the hot stove and say, let me get some distance as best as I can from this. What is illustrated here in the story of Joseph is taught explicitly elsewhere in the scriptures. Here's one example. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, it says it as clear as you can say it. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't see how close you can get. Don't ask the question, how far is too far? Flee from it. Turn around, head the other direction. Why? All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually, you're sinning against your body. This isn't like other sins in this way. 
Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. Earlier I mentioned that Joseph didn't have to learn the hard way. That doesn't mean his path wasn't hard. Did you hear that? Just because he didn't have to learn the hard way doesn't mean his path wasn't hard. To do what the Scripture's asking, in our culture, it's hard. It's hard. Joseph literally fled the situation, and the cloak he was wearing once began, once again was used for deceptive purposes, this time by Potiphar's wife, who accused Joseph of coming on to her. As did Joseph's brothers, Potiphar's wife offers Joseph's cloak as exhibit A to their lie, and Joseph ended up in prison for doing the right thing. But chapter 39 closes the way it opens. Here, here look at this. Chapter 39 in verse 2 opens with, the Lord was with Joseph. This whole thing happens, and Joseph's thrown in prison, and after he's thrown in prison, what does it say? The Lord was with Joseph. Both those passages saying the same thing. God will be with you too. When you're in the thick of trying to abide by what God says, when, you, when those times come, you're, I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I think maybe even I should do. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm going to trust what God says. God will be with you in those moments. Walking the hard path is so much better than learning the hard way. If I could go back and redo my notes, I would put that in there. Walking the hard path is so much better than learning the hard way. Let me give you a couple of examples. It is one thing to know the pain of a breakup with somebody who says, if you don't do this with me, we're going to break up. Okay, that's one kind of pain. Let me tell you a worse pain. Do what they say to do, and then they break up with you anyway, and they go tell their friends. Which pain is the worst pain? You know? It, or, or, or here's another example. It's one thing to know the loneliness of sleeping alone. That doesn't compare to the loneliness of waking up next to a stranger and saying, what did I just do? Waiting for marriage, it can feel like a long, long wait. But I can think of person after person after person that said, that's nothing. Try living with the lifetime of regret that we didn't wait, or I didn't wait. I saw a stat this week that claims that 70%, 7 out of 10 of America's young men will view pornography, not in their lifetime, this week. 7 out of 10 this week will engage in a behavior that Jesus says, looking is adultery, if you're looking in that way. It is hard to turn our eyes as much as we have to in our society. You know, I'm a guy. I can't, even, I can't even go to Super Target. You know, you hit the magazine rack. You're like, okay, where are my eyes going to go here now? Um, straight ahead. Or if I see Karen, I can say, hi, Karen. I'm just going to look at you right now. Or Stephanie, hi, Stephanie. You know, check me out here because I don't want to be checking out all of these magazines right now, right? It's hard. Everywhere you go, pop-ups. Everywhere you go, it is hard, 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 hard to turn your eyes, to flee. This is a sex-obsessed culture, but it is worth it. It is worth it. Pornography objectifies people who are made in God's image. How can we do that? How can we look at someone in a way that treats them as an object? When that's somebody's daughter, that's someone's son, that's someone's brother, that's someone's sister, how can we look at them that way? That's someone who made a mistake, who's probably someday going to wish they didn't do that. How, how do we do that? How do we engage in that? Not only that, 
Pornography can enslave you. I can't count the number of people who will use the word addict to porn because they feel addicted and they can't break away on their own. Pornography will undermine your relationships. It can destroy your marriage. It can wreck your family. Stories of kids finding their dad has been engaged. And let me tell you this. It's not, if you're engaging in pornography, it's not if you'll get discovered. You want to wreck your life, try to sin in secret. That's a great way to wreck your life. You will get found out. And when you do, can you imagine that? It can torpedo your career, hamstring your witness. A wise man, a wise man will flee from this. A wise woman would flee from this. And, and I, I get it. I get that what I'm saying today is as countercultural as it comes. Because we have a culture right now that doesn't just say, don't flee. It says, flirt with it. It, it says, run to it. It pressures us. Beyond tempting us, it pressures us to conform to our world this way. Sexual sin can follow you for a lifetime. It's a hard road to flee from that pressure. But, oh, it's a better, better, better path. So here's what I want to offer to you. I want to offer two questions. I can't do any more than I just did. I, I was able to say, here's what the Scripture says. Here's examples of three different people and how they responded. Ball's in your court now. I, I, I want to, please, I would ask you to consider these two questions. Question number one, what sources of temptation should I turn from? What are those things in this area that are, are tempting you? Is it, is it some, something online? You need to delete, you need to do whatever it is. What's your equivalent of, I'm in the house with this woman, I should not be in this house alone. What's your equivalent? Is it, get your computer in a safe place? Is it, I'm not going to carry my smartphone around? What is it? Do whatever it takes to turn from that. For some of you, some of you, you know what your step is? What turn from is? Is to pull out your smartphone right now and, and say, my pastor says I need to break up with you. Send. I'm serious. It, it is. Some of you, that's what you need. You are in a relationship. You should not be in that relationship. If they're pressuring you to get involved sexually, forget what they're telling you. What are their actions saying? If they're telling you, oh, it's because I love you, so whatever. If they love you, they're not going to pressure you to do something that you don't want to do. They're going to support you. So, phone out. We're done. Send. My pastor says so. Send. They can come and talk to me. I'll say, God says so. Send. You know, all right, you know what I mean? What do you need to turn from? What, be, to say yes to God, because that's the next part. You're not just turning from. This isn't, I hope you're not hearing a message of no, 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 no. This is a message of yes, 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 yes. That God has something better for you. A lifetime free from regret. A lifetime free from addiction. A lifetime free from, oh, I wish I didn't have to tell about this awkward situation, blah, 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 blah. Or a point in your history from this point forward free from. Who can you turn to? Well, first and foremost, obviously turn to God. Say, God, I need your Holy Spirit. You say we can be temples of the Holy Spirit. I need that. Holy Spirit, fill me. Give me a new mind. Give me a new heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Give me a fresh start. Help me to think your thoughts. Help me to care about things that you care about. Help me to see people the way you see them. And give me, make me sick if I'm vis- looking at pornography. Make me sick knowing this is somebody's wife. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody, period, who bears your image. Someone's making a mistake and I'm engaging in that. You know, give me that kind of a stomach. And then not only turning to God, but God's given us brothers and sisters in Christ. You need that person you can call to. 
hey, can I just talk to you for a while? Because I'm struggling right now. I'm feeling tempted. Someone who, after you have fallen, can say, hey, no problem. Let's start from this day forward. You know what? Let's get back on our feet. I'm here to support and encourage you. Who are those people? Now, I know in a message like this, in fact, I had one of the dads come up afterwards who knows me really well, Jim. Nimlas came up and said, you don't have two daughters by any chance, do you? <laughs> Giving a message with this power. <laughs> He's like, he knows me. He knows me well. So, I, I, and I want to apologize. If, 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 I, if this comes across as a beat-down message, it is not a beat-down message. It is a message just looking at the world saying, we don't, do you want to be part of the, the damage that's going on out there or do you want to have something different? So let's pray to that end that God would do something different in us as we close. Would you please stand and let me pray over us. Father, I do pray that, that, that what you wanted said comes across, and that is that you are not a dad who says no to everything fun. You're a, a, a father who loves us enough to say, hey, I want to protect you. Listen to me. And Lord, I, I also pray. I pray that right now um, that those who choose not to listen to you when the day comes and they realize that... Um, that the path they're on is not the path they want to be on. Lord, may they find your people wherever they are, and may your people not give them an I told you so. May they find people who don't do that, but may they find people who say, welcome home, welcome home, we love you. May they find people that meet them the way that you meet us when we turn to you in sincerity and say, let me help. Let me help you put the pieces back together. Let's go, because there's a whole life ahead of us, and there's good things that I want to do in and through you. Lord, you bless us in that way. Surround us with those types of thoughts and those type of people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.